Oh, hi, it's Zach Peter, your new favorite pop culture guru, serving you the hottest tea three times a week. From the latest news on The Real Housewives, deep dives into celebrity legal scandals, unfiltered convos with your favorite stars, and of course, the latest from Vanderpump Land, I've got you covered. And new episodes of the podcast are now available in video on Spotify. And they don't just let anybody do video, but this platinum blonde has won them over. So if you want the latest news from the ultimate tea spilling professional, tune in to No Filter with Zach Peter. That's No Filter with Zach Peter on your favorite podcast app now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of All My Movies. This month, we're just talking about some of my favorite movies, and this week, we're talking about 1987's Masters of the Universe, and I know that everyone except for maybe a small pocket of people might be saying, what in the world? Why this movie? Of all movies you could talk about, I will get into why this movie means so much to me, the ways in which I understand that it is really not a very good film, and just why it is still one of my favorites. But before we do that, I'd just like to thank you, first of all, for watching the show. If you're listening to us and you want to see the video version of the show, you can check it out on YouTube at youtube.com slash movies. And if you're watching us and you want to hear the audio version, you can click that link down below. It'll tell you how to subscribe to the audio podcast version of the show. The first misconception to clear up about the movie Masters of the Universe is that it's not really based on the animated TV show He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. It's more closely related to the toy line. The Masters of the Universe toy line was launched in 1981 by Mattel in the wake of the success of the Star Wars toys. They were looking for a new type of toy that particularly a young male audience would buy. And after heavy focus testing that responded strongly to a barbarian type theme, a light bulb went off in the head of Mattel executives as they explained to Netflix's documentary, The Toys That Made Us. The third character and a bearskin cape and a battle axe. And he called him He-Man. And we go, damn, He-Man. Boom. It's dynamite. The Masters of the Universe toy line went on sale in 1982, and in fall of 1983, the filmation animated series He-Man and the Masters of the Universe hit airwaves. And the Masters of the Universe! The show featured, of course, He-Man and his alter ego, Prince Adam, who's able to turn into the hero by holding aloft his sword of power and saying, By the power of Grayskull! The series also featured Skeletor, He-Man's arch enemy, and all manner of friends and foes in the mythical world of Eternia. What's next, Skeletor? Oh, He-Man, how you vex me. He-Man and the Masters of the Universe was a massive success, partly because it wasn't a cartoon that ran just on Saturday mornings. It was syndicated daily, which meant that every weekday there was a new or oftentimes a rerun He-Man adventure on the airwaves. And speaking from a personal level, He-Man was my first fandom, as you would call it. Uh, Before Ninja Turtles, before Batman, before anything else, I was a He-Man fan. That's one of the reasons this shirt that I'm wearing today 
that says born in the 80s. That is the Masters of the Universe font there, or whatever you want to call it. I loved Masters of the Universe. I remember one Halloween, I had a, one of those He-Man costumes that you would buy from, you know, like the grocery store. In the 80s, you know, the costumes that were just kind of like a one-size plastic thing. I tore so many holes in that costume after I wore it to school. I remember my mom and I had to rush and try to find a different costume for me to go and trick-or-treat in because I spent the day as He-Man, and it was so cool. The Masters of the Universe cartoon only ran for two official seasons from 1983 to 1985, producing 130 episodes. But after the cartoon went off the air and toy sales dipped, Mattel decided a new strategy had to be put in place to develop some new toys and He-Man adventures. To bring a He-Man movie to life, Canon Films secured the production rights to Masters of the Universe. Run by Menahem Golan and Yoram Globus, Canon was best known for movies like the Death Wish sequels, the Delta Force, Breakin' and its sequel, Breakin' 2 Electric Boogaloo, and another Canon film, 1987 Street Smart, would earn Morgan Freeman his very first Academy Award nomination. Canon Films and Golan Globus are largely known for their high-profile flops, but the fact of the matter is that they made a lot of movies, some big movies, some small movies, movies, some hits, a lot of flops. Masters of the Universe was a big investment for the company, and it came out alongside another Golan Globus production, Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, that very same summer. And Canon's heavy investment in Masters of the Universe meant that they were able to bring in some really top-level talent behind the camera. Academy Award winner and composer of Rocky, Bill Conti, was brought on to write the music. Visual effects would be supervised by Richard Edlund, formerly of ILM, who had overseen VFX on movies including Raiders of the Lost Ark, Return of the Jedi and Ghostbusters. And to edit the film, veteran editor Ann V. Coates, who won an Academy Award for cutting Lawrence of Arabia, was brought into the fold. To direct the film, first-time director Gary Goddard was brought on by the studio after they saw the design he did for a Conan the Barbarian live show at Universal Studios. Goddard signed on but did not have approval over the movie's star. Dolph Lundgren was already set to play He-Man in only his third film role, and despite headlining a potential summer blockbuster, Lundgren was well aware of the risks that came with the part. Now it's a big deal to play a toy or play a you know superhero and uh, you know the cartoon character, but in those days it was just kind of suspicious and you know kind of potentially damaging to your career. So I wasn't sure about it, but I ended up saying yes. As Skeletor, in a much more menacing role than the cackling arch-villain you would find in the animated series, Tony winner Frank Langella, who had famously played Dracula on stage and screen, was cast. Langella was drawn to the part not by the story, but by something much closer to home, as he told Vanity Fair last year. Gary Goddard, the, the director, called me in to meet with him, and it was a terrible script. Just awful. But I couldn't resist the the, the challenge of trying to make him real and believable. And I wanted my four-year-old, of course, to see me as Skeletor. One of the biggest challenges for the movie was designing both He-Man and Skeletor to fit into the real world. Animated series and action figures are one thing, actually putting these characters on film is another. William Stout, who had already designed Conan the Barbarian and Conan the Destroyer, often found his visions for a darker, bleaker He-Man clashing with the more toy-centric visions at Mattel. They said, there's blood on the sword. And then, then they said, He-Man can't kill anybody. You know, once you kill somebody with a, you know, with an eight-foot sword, I mean, it's it's not it's not a nice picture, you know. Well, he's got to look like the toy. I said, no, he really doesn't. Said, we can do our version of it. It'll still be He-Man, but he just won't look goofy. 
Langella Skeletor had to toe an even more difficult line, how to bring a talking skeleton to life while still allowing the actor's performance underneath to shine through. In his commentary for the movie, director Gary Goddard describes this process. You know, we went through many, many versions of this skull to figure out, do we make it a real skull? If it's a real skull, it's a hard skull. Then it's like a mask, and you don't get Frank Langella's performance. On the other hand, we use some very latex rubbery masks and they were too rubbery they look almost comical this is what we struggled with and came up with as a compromise it has enough rigid lines to create the shape of the skull but yet it lets Frank's performance come through. While Skeletor and He-Man, the two most famous characters from Masters of the Universe, would be front and center for the film, the decision was made eventually to eliminate a lot of the existing supporting characters, despite the fact that plans were already well underway to include them in the finished film. This decision was motivated by two things. One of them was a budget that, while not minuscule, did limit the number of characters that could appear on screen, and the other was a desire on the part of Mattel to generate new characters to boost toy sales. Why don't we take some of the most popular characters from, from the toy line, the cartoon, like He-Man, Man-at-Arms, Tila, Evelyn, Skeletor, and Beast-Man, and then create a few new characters that we can make new toys of. Well, right away, Mattel loved that because, hey, if we can make new toys to sell, then you're doing our job for us. Existing characters that were designed to be included were Tila, played by Chelsea Field, Man-at-Arms, played by John Cipher, Eva Lynn, played by Meg Foster, The Sorceress, played by Christina Pickles, and Skeletor henchman Beastman. These existing characters were joined by a handful of new characters, including Courtney Cox, fresh off an appearance in the Bruce Springsteen music video Dancing in the Dark, as Julie, a teenage girl mourning the death of her parents in a plane crash. Robert Duncan McNeil was cast as Julie's musician boyfriend Kevin, Billy Barty as the inventor Gwildor, James Tolkien as police detective Lubick, and joining the villain squad, new Skeletor henchmen named Blade, Sawrod, and Karg. Let's get into the movie itself, and let me just say this up top. Intellectually, I know this is a terrible movie. It looks pretty cheap, it's often horrendously acted, it's aged incredibly poorly, and it really doesn't offer much to the casual viewer beyond a memorable villain performance from Frank Langella. But at the same time, I unapologetically love this film. Its terribleness is baked into my DNA. It is part of a small handful of movies that include Batman 1989, Ghostbusters, and Back to the Future that I had on VHS and played on a loop for three or four years of my childhood. I've probably seen this movie a hundred times over. So while I speak of Masters of the Universe fondly, rest assured, I am well aware that this is a fully cooked cinematic turkey. After an opening voiceover that roughly establishes the premise for any parents in the audience that might have missed the cartoon. At the center of the universe, at the border between the light and the dark, stands Castle Grayskull. We get the opening credits to Masters of the Universe, which are a blatant ripoff of the opening credits to Richard Donner's Superman, along with Bill Conti's He-Man theme, which is, let's say, heavily reminiscent of John Williams' Superman theme. <laughs> The action opens in the throne room of Castle Grayskull, the seat of power in Eternia, which has just been seized by Skeletor. And the massive scale of this throne room set was something that hadn't been seen by very many Hollywood productions in the past two or three decades, according to director Gary Goddard. This was uh, one of the largest sets built in Hollywood in probably the 10 years or so before that. Two sound stages combined with the doors open from one to another with the set being built from the edge of one soundstage all the way through outside into the other one to the other end. That's how we got that depth 
The throne room set is one of the few things that shows that there was budget behind this movie and really the best use of that budget on screen in the entire film. We first meet Skeletor and his right-hand woman, Eva Lynn, as they discuss how to capture He-Man following the capture of both Castle Grayskull and the Sorceress. Both of these will eventually make Skeletor the most powerful being in the universe. Evelyn is played by actress Meg Foster, but when I was a kid, I was 100% sure that she was actually Kirstie Alley, and I don't really have any explanation other than I think that there's definitely a resemblance, and Cheers was on the air. What can I say? I was a kid. With Eternia now under Skeletor's reign, we meet the hero of our story, He-Man, who along with his compatriots Tila and Man-at-Arms free an inventor named Gwildor from Skeletor's forces. I am Gwildor of Thenor. Locksmith and inventor. Uh, Skeletor's forces were hunting me down. As a kid, it was widely acknowledged by me and my friends that Gwildor was a substitute for the character Orko, who appeared in the animated series. And I guess Gwildor is a fine enough substitute, but Orko was a wizard. And I think the consensus on the playground really was that even though Gwildor kind of filled that role, Orko was the superior character. Gwildor has invented a device called the Cosmic Key, which can transport you anywhere in space and time. Skeletor got his hands on one of them, which is how he was able to capture Castle Grayskull, but Gwildor still has the prototype, which gives our heroes a fighting chance. Can this device of yours get us to Grayskull? Certainly. To the sorceress? Those were the first coordinates I calculated before she came. They enter Castle Grayskull and attempt to rescue the sorceress, but are caught by Skeletor's forces. And I think that this is an appropriate place to say that Frank Langella plays the absolute best talking skeleton that I think could ever be played on film. He acts the crap out of this role as Skeletor. You dare threaten her life? I dare anything! I am Skeletor! Desperate to escape, Gwildor opens a portal to the first available place, and it turns out to be modern-day Earth. What a convenient way to keep the budget down. Skeletor is not happy. He-Man lives and possesses that key. I must possess all, or I possess nothing. Find them. For Franklin Jella, Skeletor was not a paycheck part. He labored very hard to find a new dimension to a villain character that could have easily lapsed into either parody or cliche on the page. I really worked hard to try to find an original way to be that sort of cliche, which is I want to rule the world, and you, you big hunk of He-Man, I'm going to get you. Our heroes arrive on Earth alive, but now missing the cosmic key, which has somehow been lost in transport. So they fan out across the city to find it and their way home. This is also where we meet a young Courtney Cox as Julie, who's preparing to leave town after her parents' death. The best thing for me to do right now is to get 3,000 miles away from Kevin, my house this town and everything and just start out fresh. Julie is also spending one last night with her musician boyfriend Kevin when they find the cosmic key in a graveyard and Kevin mistakes it for a synthesizer. <laughs> no, this is one of those new Japanese synthesizers. Here, let me try it. This is also where we learn that Eternia is apparently a largely vegetarian planet. How progressive. You mean this used to be an animal? Mm-hmm. Oh, what a barbaric world. Never think while you're hungry. 
It tasted good. To retrieve the key and capture He-Man, Skeletor sends one bad guy that we're familiar with, Beast-Man, who appeared on the TV show, and then these three other weirdos. There's Blade, who's just objectively boring. He's just a bald guy with some tinfoil on his head. Then we have Sawrod, who's essentially the character Merman, just a little bit different, but, you know, I also bought that action figure, so I guess that's a win for Mattel. And then there's Karg. And Karg is just sort of everything. He's got a Freddy Krueger face, and then this, like, white bouffant hairdo. He's got some kind of Elizabethan collar going on, and then he's wearing both a cape and a fur capelet, and he has a hook for a hand. It's like they had a bunch of leftovers in the makeup and wardrobe departments and just said, like, I just throw them all into this character and put it on the camera. We only have ten minutes. The four villains track down Julie and pull a carry on the way, burning down the school prom, and this sends her right into the arms of He-Man, where he's able to fend off Skeletor's goons. This includes getting into a sword fight with Blade, and I've always felt a little bad for Dolph Lundgren here, because it's obvious that the power sword they built was far too unwieldy to use practically, and he does the best he can, but none of the He-Man sword fights really get across his mastery of the ultimate weapon in Eternia. All of this hoopla attracts the attention of local detective Lou who's played by the great character actor James Tolkien, who, due to his roles in this movie, Back to the Future, and Top Gun, really had an outsized influence on my youth. I, I thought this guy was, like, in every single great movie. He's been in a lot of movies. He just happened to go on a real winning streak in the mid-'80s. What is this, a circus act? Now somebody's gonna give me some answers around here. Let's start with you, Blondie. Did I mention that along the way, Gwildor invents alternative energy and fixes our dependence on fossil fuels? It was an inefficient combustible system, but I fixed it. It runs on neutrinos now. No hydrocarbons needed. I really wish that he left the solution behind somewhere. Maybe with the guy that Scotty gave the formula to for transparent aluminum in Star Trek IV. Hello, computer. We will continue our look at Masters of the Universe in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Monk Pack, who makes snacks that taste like your favorite sugary treats, but with one gram of sugar or less. Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars contain one gram or less of sugar, two to three grams of net carbs, and are only 150 calories. They're great for people that are trying to eat better, cut back on those calories, or just have an overall healthier lifestyle without sacrificing taste. What's great is that I can keep these bars in the pantry right with everything else that tastes great. I can grab one. I love all of the flavors, and it is satisfying. It fills me up. It's a quick eat. It's healthier than most everything else that I would have grabbed for anyway, and it's something that can keep me going through the day. They also come in great flavors like sea salt dark chocolate, caramel sea salt, and peanut butter dark chocolate. That one is my favorite. The combination of those two flavors with the great texture is really what I go for, but you really can't go wrong no matter which flavor you choose. No matter what your situation is, it's a great snack on the go, and they are gluten-free, plant-based, and non-GMO with no soy, trans fat, sugar, alcohols, or artificial colors. And if you take a liking to one of the flavors like I have, you can also sign up to get subscribed to your favorite flavor so that you never run out. And if you do that, you get 10% off of every order that you subscribe to to keep you restocked with snacks that are healthy and make you feel good. Try it for yourself and you'll see. And I have a special deal for my listeners. Get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering our promo code MOVIES at checkout. And Monk Pack is so confident with their product, it's backed with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will exchange the product or refund your money, whichever you prefer. To get started, just go to monkpack.com. That's M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K. 
Movies.com and select any product. Then enter the code MOVIES at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. Monk Pack, delicious, nutritious food you can count on, and I'd like to thank them for sponsoring the show. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something out there that's interfering with your happiness or keeping you from achieving the goals that you want to achieve? I know a lot of times I'm so focused on doing everything out there that I need to do that I'm not worried about myself. Mental health is a very important thing, and it's critically important that you seek out the help that you need for your specific needs. BetterHelp is a service that will assess your personal needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist online. And usually you can start your communication with these therapists in under 48 hours. Now, this is not a crisis line. This is not self-help. This is professional counseling done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise that may not be available in many local areas, and BetterHelp is a resource that is available worldwide. Plus, you can log in anytime and securely message your therapist 24 hours a day, seven days a week. With BetterHelp, you're going to get timely and thoughtful responses from the counselor you're matched to, and you can schedule weekly video or phone appointments. You don't have to go to waiting rooms like you do with traditional therapy. It's all done online. BetterHelp's also committed to making sure the match that you get is right for you, which means that you can change counselors anytime you want for free, and it's more affordable than traditional therapy, and financial aid is available for those who need it. BetterHelp wants to help you start living a better life today, and you can visit their website right now and read the testimonials that are posted there daily. Visit betterhelp.com movies. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states to meet the need. And there's a special offer for viewers and listeners to this show. All my movies listeners get 10% off their first month if you go to betterhelp.com slash movies. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash movies. And I want to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring today's show. You are all aware of the penalty. Failure. Give me one more chance, Lord Skeletor. I am not in a giving vein this day. The goons head back to Eternia, and to punish his henchmen for their failure, Skeletor kills the coolest-looking one, Sauron. Then an even bigger force is sent back to Earth under the guidance of Evil Lynn to get He-Man and the key. The people wait for He-Man. For you to rule completely, he must be destroyed. Evil Lynn returns to Earth, and you may have noticed at this point that a significant amount of this movie takes place at night. There's a reason for this. Even though night shoots are extremely difficult, you have to light everything very heavily, they're hard just to switch the schedules of the cast and crew, it was done for a reason, and that reason is believability, according to director Gary Goddard. When Ed Pressman came to me with this movie, the concept was, look, we have to do He-Man on a budget, so we want to bring him to Earth. I said, okay, well, if you bring him to Earth, you got to shoot night because uh, at nighttime we can create a look for the characters with lighting that will keep them believable. But it's very difficult to have people like uh, Tila and He-Man, uh, Beast Man, whatever, walking down you know Sunset Boulevard at uh, high noon. Uh, but at nighttime, with the streets wet, with a little bit of mist in the air, a little bit of wind, uh, it can be believable. Kevin is attacked and gives up the location of the Cosmic Key, and when He-Man and the other heroes arrive to rescue him, this leads to one of my favorite dialogue dumps in history. This is maybe the fastest that a half page of dialogue has ever been shot and said in any movie. Sign up. Moving! 
Looks like Skeletor got here before us. It's all clear over here. Stay ready. Kevin! After a little comic relief from Gwildor... Native clothing! Lots of it! All over the place! <laughs> the group heads to the music store just ahead of Evil Lynn's minions, walking in like the only people that showed up for a cancelled S&M convention. How come I get this feeling I've been looking for you all night? I believe you have something that belongs to us. Well, let me guess. The bad guys attack and He-Man, Man-at-Arms, and Tila fend them off as Gwildor attempts to get them all back to Eternia. There's even a moment that would have sent certain corners of the internet screaming into their webcams. Anyway, it sounded like you needed a woman's touch out here. Woman-at-Arms. God, the 80s were so insufferably woke, am I right? Next up is a scene that really disturbed me as a kid. In order to get the key, Evelyn impersonates Julie's dead mother and convinces her to grab the key and bring it out to her. And when you're a kid, the idea that your parents could be corrupted or that somebody could become the person that at least I trusted most in the entire world was a very disturbing concept. This is going to be a theme with this movie, the idea of bringing these very weird things into little kids' lives. Your new friends are all tied up with the work we're doing and they have something we want. That shiny metal thing with the blinking lights. Will you get it for us? The desecration of the love for your parents and the betrayal of a family figure is something that's hard for a kid to wrap his mind around, but I really was scared by this scene, and it's probably because you get in your mind, well, is my mom my mom? What if it's Evil Lynn pretending to be my mom? Thank you, my darling. After the Cosmic Key is captured by Evelyn, Skeletor makes a brief appearance on Earth, and it's a pretty unnecessary story beat, but this is another place where the budget of the film came to bear, and they used it wisely, because I've always loved this big sort of invasion ship that Skeletor has, and I can imagine a bigger budget film where Skeletor actually comes to Earth and tries to invade, and you can see just what kind of mighty force he might have commanded in a different movie that had a lot more money to play around with. As it is, I think it's a pretty impressive look at the might of the supervillain. After a very cheesy action sequence involving a proto version of the hoverboards that we'd seen Back to the Future Part 2, He-Man allows himself to be captured by Skeletor in exchange for the lives of his friends, who are now trapped on Earth after the Cosmic Key prototype is heavily damaged, wiping out all of the information and their way home. I don't want innocent people to die. Well said, He-Man. How noble. Back in Eternia, we get what might be the kinkiest scene in any 80s blockbuster. He-Man is stripped to the waist, greased up, and then whipped in front of Skeletor, who demands that his enemy kneel in front of him. Are you ready to kneel now? Proud warrior. This also gives Frank Langella an opportunity to do a really great Shakespeare-style monologue. And again, just the best talking skeleton you could possibly imagine. You barely notice the fabric nostrils. The Alpha and the Omega. Death and rebirth. And as you die, so will I be reborn. Then Skeletor literally becomes the master of the universe, gaining the power that he's been seeking for the entire movie. So let's put aside the fact that master of the universe slash super Skeletor, as I like to call him, looks like an overly ornate dining room chandelier. This also introduced another intriguing thing to my brain as a kid. The concept that the good guys can lose. Now, of course, they don't lose at the end of the movie, but ever so briefly, we get a win from the villain of the film. He obtains his goal. Yo. 
Yes, this victory doesn't last, but ever so briefly, the good guys don't come out on top. When we talk about movies and why they impact us, why these silly little things stick with us year after year, it's tied to things like this. The concept in my brain as a kid that good and evil aren't as immutable as they think they are, and also that the inevitability of good winning over evil isn't as black and white as I've been led to believe by the other forms of media that I've been watching. There's a gray area there, and you're introduced to the concept that sometimes the bad guys can win, or at the very least that sometimes the victory from the good guys isn't as easy as just one fight and it's over. Once he's bested He-Man for what he believes is the final time, Skeletor takes a moment to taunt his enemy. Tell me about the loneliness of good, He-Man. Is it equal to the loneliness of evil? This line was added by Langella himself, who was looking to mythic storytelling for inspiration. It became very important to me that I not say foolish things, that I find inspiration in some of the great writers. So we went to Joseph Campbell, you know, the hero with a thousand faces. That's where the line, tell me about the loneliness of good He-Man, is it equal to the loneliness of evil? The tides turn when He-Man's friends arrive after Kevin, the musician, is able to remember the tones that the cosmic key played, which turn out to be the coordinates to Eternia. That's it! How did you do that? I don't know. I, I just, if I hear a tune a couple of times, I can usually remember it. Why didn't you tell me you were a song maker? It's an 80s movie. Let's just roll with it. The ensuing battle allows He-Man to be freed and to grab his power sword and say his catchphrase. <laughs> Now here's where I've seen a little bit of a misperception about the real story behind the making of this movie. After He-Man reclaims the power sword, he and Skeletor exchange words, which lead to a challenge for one last battle. Yes! Let this be our final battle! The final battle was supposed to be much more grandiose than it ended up being. Gary Goddard has said that he intended to use the entirety of the throne room set, which is why it has so many different levels. But budget overruns and money troubles ended up necessitating the final battle to be pared down dramatically, much to the disappointment of Dolph Lundgren and Frank Langella. Suddenly, this intricate fight with Skeletor had to be, like, simplified into, like, you know... 20% of what it was originally. Well, I got on the set prepared to shoot an intricate, terrific battle, and they pulled the plug. This was not a long-planned reduction in shooting. The word came down with very little notice, forcing Gary Goddard to improvise and come up with a way to film this climactic duel. We were told, tomorrow's your last day. You're, gonna, you're basically done tomorrow. You need to wrap everything up in a day. So the idea was uh, I was going to turn the lights out. At the moment that the sword clashed with the staff, I had them turn the lights off in the facility and go to dark. And then with the room dark, I had them get a color wheel, and I told the cinematographer, Hananya, you're going to need to do this, you know, handheld camera, and we're going to have them battle. And knowing we come back later and animate over each of the hits with some kind of an animation. One misconception, though, is that this entire final battle was unable to be filmed during principal photography, which is not true. The final duel in a scaled-down form was filmed during the initial photography of the film, right up until the point that He-Man strikes Skeletor's staff with the power sword and transforms him from Super Skeletor back to regular Skeletor. 
The portion that was filmed two months later after Goddard secured additional funding, including, he says, surrendering part of his own salary, was the very final encounter between Skeletor and He-Man that includes the ultimate victory, where Skeletor attempts to stab He-Man, but He-Man is able to throw his archenemy into one of the pits of Castle Grayskull. Goddard says that this was an essential reshoot necessary to make the film even make sense. He-Man! The movie wraps up with the good guys triumphant. He-Man and his friends wish Julie and Kevin a good journey as they return to Earth, and Gwildor returns Julie to a point in time before her parents' death where she's able to keep them from boarding the plane that kills them. Don't get on that plane today. I have a terrible feeling. The movie ends with Kevin and Julie reunited, left with a memento to remember their time in Eternia. But that's not where Masters of the Universe ends, and this is another thing that this movie introduced me to for the first time, the concept of a post credit sequence. I remember distinctly, and I don't know why this is something that's stuck in my head all these years, I couldn't have been more than five or six years old, but one of my friends telling me on the playground that if you fast forward through the credits of Masters of the Universe, at the end of the movie, Skeletor pops up out of the water. Now, my friend was a notorious liar, so obviously I didn't believe him, but I went home, I fast forwarded through the credits, and sure enough... However, this is one of the few times that a blatant setup to a sequel didn't actually pan out. Despite a marketing blitz and the heat generated by the toys and goodwill left from the animated show, Masters of the Universe was not a box office success, despite it being positioned as a new Star Wars for a new generation of kids. From a distant galaxy, they have come to Earth. Only they have the powers to be. Masters of the Universe. Live the adventure. The reviews for Masters of the Universe were brutal and the box office was worse. The movie opened on August 7th, 1987 and placed third place in its opening weekend behind the second week of The Living Daylights, Timothy Dalton's first film as James Bond, and the first week of the comedy Stakeout. Masters of the Universe ultimately grossed just $17 million domestically, short of its $20-plus million production budget. And this was a huge blow for Golan Globus, because just two weeks earlier, Superman IV, The Quest for Peace, had also bombed, opening in fourth place. Canon films under the leadership of Golan and Globus would only survive a couple more years, culminating in the release of Jean-Claude Van Damme's Cyborg, a film that was adapted from an intended sequel, Two Masters of the Universe. Masters of the Universe was arguably the most high-profile film role of Dolph Lundgren's career, although he did appear as the Marvel character The Punisher in a direct-to-video film in 1989. Lundgren has remained active, however. He's appeared in numerous direct-to-video films and had high-profile parts in movies like Universal Soldier, The Expendables films, Creed II, and Aquaman. For Frank Langella, Masters of the Universe provided the opportunity he was looking for to bring new dimension to an over-the-top villain. And this personal victory has taken precedence for him over any bad buzz that the industry may have had about the movie. Many, many people over the years have said, how could you do that? You know, it's a great deal of superiority. And I would say, I think it's one of my best performances. I loved doing it. I loved the role because I felt as long as I stayed tasteful within his majesty and size, I could go to the moon with him. And I tried to go to the moon with him all the time. I found each day I found myself more and more liberated to do that sort of thing. 
One critic that wasn't able to weigh in immediately, however, was Langella's son, the reason he'd taken the film role in the first place. I asked if I could have a private screening of it when it was finished. I brought my four-year-old. I gave him a big bag of popcorn. He sat next to me and I thought, oh, my son could be so proud of me. He fell asleep in the first reel. <laughs> I don't think he ever even saw me. I'm sure that I saw this movie when I was four or five years old. I don't think it was in the theaters because I'm pretty sure I would have remembered that, but it must have been pretty shortly thereafter because I remember renting the movie with my grandmother on our Wednesday afternoon trips to the video store. I had the hard case VHS copy of the movie that I basically wore out over the years. I've since owned the film on DVD. I own the film on Blu-ray, obviously, and it's still a movie that I enjoy going back to, even though, yes, I acknowledge that it's not very good. During my entire time at Screen Junkies, one of my crusades was to get us to do an honest trailer for Masters of the Universe, and a couple of years ago, I succeeded. Does this movie have anything to do with He-Man, or is this whole thing going to be about Courtney Cox's dead parents? It was a plane crash. Those things just happened. Unless that plane crashed into Snake Mountain, I don't care. One of the things I always talk about when we talk about film criticism and talking about movies is the concept of subjectivity. And Masters of the Universe, for me, is one of those inherently subjective films in my life. And everybody has these movies, these dumb little movies that hit you at the right time. And the great thing about it is there's these little pockets, there's these little windows. So you'll meet somebody who's maybe three or four years younger than you, which isn't that much time, and yet has no idea about this movie or that movie that meant so much to you in the first place because it hit you at a young age. It's sunk into my brain, and I'm sure that if I saw Masters of the Universe for the first time last year, it would have a completely different meaning to me. That's the importance of movies, that's the importance of film, and that's the experience that everybody takes away. Everybody's lived film experience is different. The tapestry is not the same for any two people, and one person's trash is another person's treasure. So a lot of people might look at this month as some of my favorite movies and say, why did you waste a spot on Masters of the Universe? It's because I do treasure this movie. I treasure the trashy elements of it. I treasure the great parts of it, like Frank Langella's performance. I treasure this movie's place in my life and the memories that I associate with it. And that's why I love movies. I think that we attach memories and life experience to movies in a way that is unique to this art form. That's why I treasure Masters of the Universe, and I know that there are a few people that do as well. I've talked to friends about this movie. A couple of them said that they were excited to hear this episode, and this isn't probably going to be my most watched or my most listened to episode, but I think it's going to be one of the most fun episodes for people to relive what this movie was for them and for people to maybe think about the other movies in their lives that do the same thing. Masters of the Universe lives on as well. We have a new cartoon series hitting Netflix very soon that's headlined by Kevin Smith as the lead creative. It's just another iteration of this thing, the very first fictional thing that I can remember loving, and I think that you're always going to hold special sentimentality and attach special meaning to something like that. This Masters of the Universe Blu-ray doesn't have a whole lot of features. The print of the movie looks pretty good. Other than that, you get the theatrical trailer and a feature commentary. Not much else. Perhaps we'll get another version of this Blu-ray at some point, but really Really, I don't need a whole lot of special features on this movie. The movie is the appeal to me. And that wraps it up for this episode. Next week, we're going to wrap up the Skybound slash SEN era of all my movies with another one of my favorites. And I'll talk a little bit about the future of the show. I'm excited to continue to explore my collection of films as the show continues in the future. And we'll talk about that a little bit more next week. But until then, it's time to go back on the shelf. Thanks so much for watching. Good journey.